0: It's kind of hard to believe that we're already in episode 44, so welcome and thank you for continuing the journey with me. This week, we'll continue with the research on my dissertation, get ready for the move to Washington, D.C., and I'll give you a lay of the land for starting my assignment at the Almost Pentagon. First, this past week, for some reason, likely tied to recalling my journey, it has been a long way from the farm. By the time this assignment comes to an end, it's almost 15 years. In part, as that boy in the trash can, a lot has happened. There were times, more than a couple, that life wasn't guaranteed. When those instances occurred, because I was raised in a Christian home, I I wondered why. What I usually came up with was that there has to be a reason. Maybe it was to tell my story. Maybe it was to do something amazing. Maybe it was simply because my time wasn't up. No matter, what I do know is that each time I had a success, I would often think back to my start in life and, like the victor, show in my mind, or at least think a little bit, that I won. I won back just a little bit of myself. And maybe that's what we all should be able to do. Equally so, each time I had a setback when there was that purple rain, I would wonder, and I still took me back to my start. Now this all may sound a bit silly. I guess that because I do know how my life started, I realized a long time ago that it pops in my head. I'm sharing this because I also need to set the stage for a period of time, soon, in the journey, That in hindsight and through serious thought, my PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, a word I think poorly explains that medical condition, caused a lot of pain to people that I care about and I've tried to redress. As the next episodes unfold, I think you'll see how, in some ways, there were almost two lost decades, which is probably the best way to describe that period of time. I share this in this point in time because first, I don't want to jump out and surprise anyone and secondly, perhaps most importantly, to inform and educate listeners about living with PTSD. Each is different and I've learned to be sure that at the same time you already know so much about my past or at least in my situation the impact that life has started to take a toll on being able to manage, rather balance, my personal life and professional responsibilities, I'm sharing how I managed it, or mismanaged it, over a half century. One additional goal of my podcast is to share with others, both with and who know someone with PTSD. It might help. From last week, my experience in starting the dissertation had some quick ups and downs. In hindsight, I think that was a benefit because I did have a plan to move as quickly as possible, especially with the interviews on campus. You know, if senior leaders see you about, chatter may ensue and the pros and cons at the particular juncture that the institution was in. I submitted the list of people I wanted to interview, from the president to the commandant, deans, faculty, and some students. In hindsight, and most importantly due to my inexperience with conducting this type of research, I didn't interview the office that was responsible for the accreditation process at NDU. And that was probably a misstep. Oh well, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? After the quick change in heart by Admiral Baldwin, I decided that I should interview him first. When I got to his office, I realized it was going to be a very short meeting, and probably one that I would not have control over. Something that Professor Thielen said early on when I picked this topic popped in my head. He noted that there will be some thinking that since I was in the military, would I be able to be critical with those who are senior in the organization. Admiral Baldwin was sitting at the round table in his office with a cup of soup and some crackers. So, oh, this is his lunch break. Great. He invites me to join him at the table. And to clear up any confusion, confusion, there was only one bowl of soup, so I guess maybe we're sharing? Or is someone bringing me some soup? Uh, No. And yes, those were conversations in my head. I thank him for the opportunity to conduct the research again and give him a little background and a highlight from Representative Skelton's interview with the aim that it will solidify myself as a serious researcher, and I I do think it helped. He was, of course, very cordial and provided his view of why this was important and how it would enhance the education already being conducted at the university. After this interview, there are many others. It is engaging, educational for me, and it went pretty smoothly considering the start. To conduct the research part about the history of the National War College and its curricula and so forth, I needed key data points, so of course, i go to the library and speak with the archival librarian. She was amazing, well, librarians all are. They're very helpful and in this case, she kept bringing me carts and carts of documents and sources that she found. She was almost more excited about it than I was. Since we were in the archives, I had to do all the research in the library, which is of course expected. There were some really interesting documents. There were documents in the past where this concept of accreditation had been broached before, many years ago. I learned about the history of senior PME and how Congress had their hand in everything from the curricula to the actual numbers of students that would attend. There was one note that even increased the number by just one student. A notable document was by Jim Kegel about the curricula from 1946 through 1990. It was a key document because it already summarized how the curriculum changed and that was really important to my research. There were letters between the school and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as well as notations in the Congressional record. In all, I referenced 134 different documents among the hundreds that I looked at. I'm going to share two very special experiences during this period. The first was that Fort McNair is the post where the National Defense University is housed, and it's quite historical. In fact, when airplanes come on approach from that side of the airport into Reagan, you can see where the Potomac and the Anacostia Rivers come together, which is the point where National Defense University is and the National War College. In fact, when you see that building from the air on that point, it is the National War College. Fort McNair is also the land area where the Lincoln conspirators were tried and hanged, and where John Wilkes Booth was originally buried under one of the buildings on the post. There's a marker there. He has, of course, subsequently been moved. This was in 1992, and I don't recall when the film was discovered by the library. It was in relatively in the recent past. They discovered among their materials some film, and it had photographs of the hanging of the conspirators. I was shown the photos of the hanging of Mary Surratt and two other co-conspirators. There was a photographer who took a series of photos of this very historical event. There they were, on the hanging platform with the nooses above their heads. Then... There is a photo where the wind blew Mary Surratt's hat off her head and rolled onto the grass. The hanging had to be stopped until the hat was retrieved, because after all, in 1865, a woman could not be outside, even to be hanged, without a hat. The other interesting story was they found some documents where there were multiple copies, and the librarian graciously asked me if I would like to keep a copy, and, of course, it was very kind of her, and showed me how excited they were that the research was being conducted on their institution, and I promised to provide the library with a copy of the completed dissertation, which, which, of course, I did. Now, I'm sure everyone is starting down. Make a trip to NDU and check out Terwilliger's book. So all the interviews are conducted, and it was a great experience. I had to have those tapes transcribed. Diana was a champ, and over time, I also learned how to run that machine. So all the tapes were done in pretty short order. I have all those tapes, and I was going to post a photo of them this week. Alas, they aren't where I thought they were, so I'm going to keep looking. Dissertations are almost always divided into about six sections. Remember, it is a research paper after all. So there is an abstract, introduction, literature review, a background section, the research, how the case study applies, and conclusions. A literature review is to conduct the research on a topic from journals and published scholarly work, so now it's time to do the writing. That most important thing, that advice I got from Professor Bieber was work on it every day, even if you change just one word, and I will say that I did just that, well, except for one day, and I felt incredibly guilty. Some days I just changed one word because it is a daunting project, especially in a period long before the kinds of word processing that we have today. When writing anything of this length, the slog is tough. Thankfully, I do write pretty well for never taking college English. At some point, it's finished, and yet there is constant wordsmithing on the margins when you barely tweak a sentence or change just one word. I was getting to that point early in the fall of 1992. Since it was the culmination of earning my doctorate, I was, of course, very nervous about actually saying I'm ready to defend. Yes, defend. You are required to go in person in front of your dissertation committee and they'll ask you questions about the research after you make your presentation that basically touches on each of the sections I mentioned just a bit ago. Now you know how my orals went and one of those professors is on that committee. So I was stressed out a lot. A process point is that you provide each of the members a copy of each chapter as it's completed. This way, as you go along, they're supposed to give you feedback, if necessary, so that when you're ready to defend, they're not speed reading your dissertation and they've been part of your project all along. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. I'm getting ready to make the move to Washington at the same time that I'm in those final stages of polishing up the dissertation and hem on when I should defend. I moved to D.C. in October of 92. I had already sent the last chapter to the committee members. The question is, when will I defend? I do have an evil plan. Back to the base, I'm wrapping up what was a pretty satisfying assignment. Just three years and six months, and stretching those last six months was great because I was able to get to that good point with William & Mary. I was supposed to go in early summer. In that last appraisal at Headquarters ACC, it says something that I believe strongly that is the goal of every military member. It says, Captain Terwilliger leaves AC a better command. He again is the ACC Company Grade Officer of the Quarter and recognized by Headquarters Air Force for proposing modifications to the Financial Indicator Program, so it was a great assignment. What I'll add is that being at the Major Command at this particular point in time was really valuable because it helps illustrate that you don't have to be a senior-level officer to make a difference that will benefit the entire Air Force. Now, just past the five-year mark, I'm headed on to my next adventure, and I'm very excited about it. The integration of SAC and TAC into ACC, along with my experience in Air Training Command and the Pacific Air Forces, provided valuable insight on the range of missions in our Air Force. The kickoff of desert storm, natural disasters, and closing long-term bases were all valuable experiences that built a pretty good foundation. Of course, my experience in both services and MWR was likely a key reason for my selection for this move as well. The hurdle that I had to overcome, though, was my grade and tenure, you know that at Langley, I had Colonel Horney in, in his camp, and he gave me the chance to lead in parts of the organization that more senior officers tend to lead. After I left, for example, my replacement was a major. Leaving friends is always a tough thing when you move, and especially in the military. I guess it's just part of the deal. Rich and I were very close friends, and we enjoyed so many great activities. We also engaged with some other company grade officers, some couples and some single folk. Our groups really had a great time, and it was nice that we had such a nice large group to go do things together. Some of the couples welcomed little ones, and watching new parents with their kids was sometimes a little entertaining for me. One distinct memory was that when one of my friends called and said their child was going to preschool, We didn't have preschool when I was young, but I knew that she wasn't. What? Why would you say that? Well, she's not potty trained. I called my goddaughter's mom, who had four children, and asked her how to potty train a child. She gave me some tips, and so I went over the next weekend, and she was potty trained in one weekend. Yep, it's true. There were barrel of monkeys games, and I used a plan that my friend gave me, and it worked. The funny thing is that we're close to the finish line on Sunday, and she comes out and says, I went to the big potty. Wow, I'm a miracle worker. I went in to flush the toilet, and alas, no pee. As you know, little kids can't lie. Are you sure you went to the toilet? Um... No. Okay, back on the trainer pop. Long story short, she went to preschool on time. (music) Arriving at Air Force headquarters was exciting. Like a lot of people who start out in the D.C. metro area, I found a very spacious studio apartment in Crystal City as my interim apartment until I got a lay of the land. Crystal City is part of Arlington on the metro line with a lot of shopping, restaurants, and many high-rise apartments. There are two little unknown yet curious facts about the Pentagon and two facts that you likely do know. First, the curious ones. The Pentagon is technically located in Arlington, Virginia, yet the address for the Pentagon is Washington, D.C. Making things even more curious, the area code for Washington, D.C. is 202, yet the Pentagon's area code is 703 for Northern Virginia. Now you may wonder why. When the District of Columbia was formed, both Maryland and Virginia gave up part of their land in 1790 to form the diamond shape that you know as Washington, D.C. After a lot of controversy and politics, the land in Virginia was returned in 1847. By the time the Pentagon was built in 1941 on the old site of the airport, it was technically sited on DC proper due to what was determined as a high water mark and low water mark of the of the river. So that's how they determined what who owned which land was when the river was high and the river was low, which is kind of weird. Anyway, it was all very controversial, and eventually it was determined that it was too far inland to be considered part of Washington. Finally, Virginia ceded exclusive jurisdiction over the Pentagon to the federal government in 1942 and that's when it became a federal enclave, hence the Washington, D.C. address. So you all likely know that the Pentagon has five sides. It also has five floors and within the building there are five rings encircling a five-acre courtyard in the center of the world's largest building. The most famous of the rings is the E-ring, because it is the outermost ring, and that's where almost all the senior leaders across DOD have offices, because that ring is the only ring with outside views. There is also a basement, which is the hub of transportation and logistics movement, and yes, the rumors that there are rats, or it was true when I was there, in the basement. Which floor and ring were the MWR and services offices? Well... None of them. They were in Crystal City. Several Pentagon offices were outside the Pentagon because of the planned renovation of the building and not enough space. Our offices were actually convenient on one sense that it was the most northernmost building in walking distance to the Pentagon. It was still quite a walk. It was also a fair walk to the Metro as well in the opposite direction. So if it was inclement weather, you would walk south to the metro station and ride up to, the, up to the Pentagon, or you would just walk over to the Pentagon. The amount of time was close to the same. It was just a long walk in uniform when it was hot or when it was raining, so those were all key considerations. With that very quick lay of the land for this massive building, when you're not in it as much... Like, I wasn't very much in the building. You don't learn the building very quickly, and I often got lost. Some escalators, for example, only go in one direction at one time, and they change directions at another time. The inner ring is the smallest, obviously, so when you're lost, it makes sense to go there and then out to the spokes. No, actually, I went around the outer ring because you could look outside and see landmarks for where you were on what side of the building. So when I got my first walk about of the Pentagon, I was told that whenever you get lost, just go to the purple water fountain and get your bearing. I think I actually saw that purple water fountain twice in my years at the Pentagon other than that first time when I was shown the building. When I had to go to the building, I would always allow an extra 30 to 40 minutes for me to get lost. And sometimes more than once. Our building was a very nice building with, yes, parking. And a nearby naval office contracted with a fitness center in their building not far from ours. And so we got to join that as well for free. On the downside, well, as a lieutenant... I had my own office. When you're on the air staff, which is what headquarters air force is called, no one below division office I'm sorry, no one below division chief has an office. You have a cubicle. They say that in the Pentagon, unless you're a general, don't expect an office, as many colonels are in cubicles as well, and sometimes there are one-star generals who say, "Yeah, I had to go make the coffee." At least most of our cubicles for branch chiefs were along the windows. For me, living in Crystal City was a huge convenience initially because I could actually walk to work through the underground, which had shops, coffee places, and small eateries. Not far was Pentagon City, which had a huge mall, and so this area was a very convenient place to land when I learned the area. Now remember that MWR and Services was a new combined office on the air staff as a new career field. And here's another important aspect that you'll learn about during my time on the air staff. For nearly every area of the Air Force, the Pentagon serves as the policy making for the Air Force. That makes sense. Some offices also have the teams to implement the policy in the Pentagon or the surrounding area, and many have an agency located somewhere else. When we were part of personnel, our agency was the policy-maker as well. Once we were removed from under-personnel, we had to establish an MWR and Services Agency. That agency was located at Randolph Air Force Base in Texas and still is to this day, although, like the air staff, they are actually in leased space off the base proper. I don't recall when the agency moved off Randolph Air Force Base. It wasn't long after the merger. I haven't mentioned much about the services organization. Services used to be part of engineering before the merger into MWR. And that may sound a bit strange until you have a feel for the mission. Two big time wartime missions of services is feeding and housing troops. From my time in Red Horse, you know that engineers are the first to build an infrastructure and with that comes the need for food and lodging. No food? No mission, no place to lay your head, no rest. So, not only did the air staff have to pull the services functions out from under engineering, we had to blend them all into the MWR agency staff. All this unfolded not long before my arrival onto the air staff with some residual overflow of angst for some of the members on the team. Mergers are always a basket of kittens. Now there are far more services officers at this time than MWR officers, and certainly far more senior officers generally. Even during my time, we had more services division chiefs with little or no MWR experience. In my case, all of my direct supervisors during that tenure at the Pentagon were all homegrown services officers. Notably, during my tenure, I was the only military person on the air staff with both services and MWR experiences. Aha! Anyway, my first job was the Chief of Resources and Requirements. I was responsible for the broad planning and policies for the resource utilization that included $1.2 billion in NAF programs and an $800 million appropriated fund budget. I had the responsibility to monitor the financial performance Air Force-wide and implement congressional and DOD decisions for recommendation to the MWR Advisory Board. While that sounds like a lot for a captain, well, it was. Next week, I'll defend the dissertation and get settled into the D.C. area for what I'm hoping is going to be an amazing assignment. That long, long way from the trash can and the days on the farm. Sometimes I think these two things coming together helped to show how I overcame a lot of adversity and sometimes I think I would have made some of the same choices despite the challenges. So much to ponder about where we've been and where we're going. I think everyone does this, especially those of us who are long retired and reminiscing. Anyway, have a great week. Summer is here, and you know, podcasts are great to listen to while sitting in the sun by the pool. I'll be back next week.